hearts of me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Nick Dixon! I've been dreaming of everyone how's everyone doing you all right thank you so much for coming to the first ever weekly skeptic live and possibly the last depending how it goes <laughs> no it'll be fine so thanks so much we sold out the venue can you believe it so amazing amazing we're going we'll go for the 900 next time you know what i mean let's keep it chill what a great thing so thank you so much for coming out and can i just say first what an honor it is to be in a room of 250 people who like toby young <laughs> but who think James Delingpole's gone a bit mental. So... <laughs> we love James, but that is our target demographic. Um, I'm just kidding. Actually, we should find out. Let's, let's do a quick poll. Who here tonight is, would consider themselves Team James? Okay. Not bad. Not bad. The spectre of Delingpole looms large. All right. A few pockets, okay, all right. All right, how about who would consider themselves Team Toby? Oh, more, okay, that's good. All right, very risky question. Who here is Team Nick? Yeah. Great people, great people, all right, amazing. They're the true legends. And just, just a quick check, who here has just been dragged here and has no idea what I'm talking about? Oh, quite a few. A disturbingly high number, okay, well. What it is, guys, it's a podcast, but this is a live podcast, that's it, and we have different teams. The teams are just a loose way of saying what your current politics are. So Team James means you've gone a little bit down the conspiracy rabbit hole, and, uh, you know, he has some man, you know, he has some sort of, you think, like, I don't know, the vaccine is designed to kill us all, and, um, you know, Bill Gates is trying to reduce the population. Um, but, but he also has some mad ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, chemtrails are real, or Paul McCartney died in 1966. <laughs> Re replaced by a ringer, apparently. Dinosaurs are fake. I mean, that one's true, but, you know, they get stuff right occasionally, you know what I mean? They get the odd bit right. Um, Team Toby, by, by the way, can everyone hear me okay? Is that all right? And can we shut the venues at the doors at the back? That would be better, I think. Anyway, bit of admin. Basically, Team Toby is kind of like, uh, you know, moderate skepticism. Everything's a cock-up, not a conspiracy. The vaccine may cause harms, but it's not designed to kill us all. You know, a bit of a lib, really. And, um, you know, th th thinks immigration has some positives, lol. And, um, <laughs> and then you've got Team Nick, the best team, many people are saying, on many sides. Team Nick... Basically, just fully reactionary, just like, you know, anti-woke, of course, you know, but also bring back the death penalty, and um, women, women shouldn't be allowed to vote. Just, you know what I mean? They're like, just... <laughs> but because I'm a comedian, there's always that chance that I might be joking. So that's how we sort of reactionary irony. And um, so those are the basic teams. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. And well, it's not, I made, it, I made it sound like a debate, like see if you change your mind tonight. It's not like that. It's just a normal podcast. So what we're going to do tonight 
we're just going to do a normal podcast, really, but with you guys watching. Bit creepy, but you know, it's sort of a voyeuristic experience. So it'll just be like there's stories from the week, and then it'll be like we might do a bit of Twitter, which is our bird watch section, a bit of Peak Woke, where we, everyone's favorite section, right? Yeah, we love Peak Woke. Uh, maybe and Will, of course, Dr. Will Jones is going to be here, editor of the Daily Skeptic, and we might have a little couple of surprises here and there. Let's see. And then we'll do a Q&A where you can ask us anything within reason, you know what I mean? Ask, ask Toby anything, I'm very sensitive, but we'll do a Q&A, and then it's the after party with me and Toby, and a few contacts from Epstein's Black Book. Um, <laughs> which regular listeners will know Toby was in. So, um, <laughs> all right, I think that's enough for me, so without further bollocks for me, let's introduce the man that a small percentage of you came to see. Um, <laughs> The king of free speech, really, the hero of amendments to the online safety bill, of my very good colleague, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> please put your hands together and welcome Mr. Toby Young! I mean, um, I think I should just leave the stage now. We should just have Nick for the duration of the <laughs> 120 minutes. That was, um, that was peerless. Um, but just, just one, one slight correction. Um, it wasn't Jeffrey Epstein's little black book. It was Ghislaine Maxwell's address book. And she was a friend of my girlfriend's at the time. Um, anyway, um, I think as I, I said on the podcast um, a couple of weeks ago, um, someone has actually... I mean, that, that black book has now been reproduced. It's, it's, it's been digitalized. It's on the internet. And whenever Jacob Epstein, uh, sorry, whenever he's in the news, um, uh, uh, then um, someone posts the page and my phone number comes up and someone will inevitably call me and say, why are you in Jeffrey Epstein's little black book? And I have to explain what I've just explained to you. Um, but uh, it's quite difficult to talk about it without sounding really defensive. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're already in trouble when you're like, it's not Epstein's book, it's his girlfriend's. Okay, can we clarify? You know what I mean? It's like, it's not much better, is it? You know, I wasn't on the island, I was just on the plane. Um, Never on the plane. <laughs> Never on the island. Lolita Express. Um, can anyone see us at the back? Is it all right? No? Oh, really? I don't know, that's kind of a floor of the venue, isn't it, really? There's not much we can... I've, I've asked you, but there's literally nothing we can do about it, so... Um, we come a bit further forward, does that help? No, that can't be better. Uh, well, <laughs> we, are, we are here, just so you know. Um, but yeah, okay, we'll just probably crack on with the main podcast then. So most of the people here know what the podcast is. So I'm guessing everyone uh, followed the old uh, Meghan and Harry car crash that totally happened. <laughs> totally happened, guys. Um, car crash, car chase. Chase, not a car crash. We were, I was probably hoping out loud there. But... Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Can you say that? This is not going out anywhere, is it? Um, <laughs> so I thought we'd start with that. I mean, it was, uh, there was quite an interesting piece from Cara Kennedy in The Spectator about it, sort of saying how it, you know, there's this idea, this relentless pursuit that lasted over two hours, multiple near collisions, and then everyone's pointing out this is literally impossible in New York, right? I mean, you, you've lived in New York, Toby. You can't have a high-speed chase. I mean, supposedly this two-hour high-speed chase took place in New York's Upper East Side. I mean, you can literally walk from one end of the other on the Upper East Side in about 15 minutes, walk. So how they managed to have a, a, a high-speed, bullet-like car chase through the Upper East Side that lasted two hours is mysterious. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it, it's they so... And then they got in touch with Backgrid, the photo agency, 
and they sort of, but they hit back against Harry and Meghan, and, and did you see this? They were kind of like, they said in America, as I'm sure you know, they were trying to sort of get the footage back, weren't they, or whatever, they were trying, some, some, some bollocks like that. I haven't researched, I've been too busy organizing this bloody venue. Um, so, and then Backgrid came back to them and said, in America, as I'm sure you know, property belongs to the owner of it. Third parties cannot just demand it be given to them, as perhaps kings do. Perhaps you should sit down with your client and advise them that his English rules of royal prerogative to demand that the citizenry hand over their property to the crown were rejected by this country long ago. We stand by our founding fathers. 1776, they went full Alex Jones on it. It's like... <laughs> Did you see that, Toby? I didn't see that. No. Oh, okay. And uh, anyway, that was part of it. And then Harry was doing, you know, he said all this stuff. Apparently he has a thing called the me you can't see. Has anyone seen that? There's a mental health, imagine how bad this is. A mental health docu-series with Harry called the me you can't see. Just, just digest for a second how awful that must be. And he said, um, my mother was chased to her death. And now look what's happened. You want to talk about history repeating itself, they're not going to stop until she dies. So this is his attempt to kind of pretend that Meghan is being pursued in the same way. But of course, as Cara pointed out here in the piece, um, you know, Diana was hounded by the press from 19 years old. It's incomparable to Harry marrying a 37-year-old American actress and blogger. Um, so yeah, and they, they're just, well, that's what, those are her words, not mine, but you know what I mean? So it's all nonsense, isn't it? It's all nonsense. I imagine, you know, they were probably waiting, loitering on the steps of the venue where Megan had been given her Woman of Vision Award alongside the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Um, I, imagine they were, I imagine they were waiting on the steps. Um, uh, they're probably getting quite cold in her gold lame dress. And incidentally, when her gold lame dress was first mentioned, I think it was priced at $1,850. The second time it was mentioned, a day later, it had gone up to $3,000. In last call, I, I, I checked it was in the sun, it had gone up to $8,000. So every time the story is repeated, the value of her gold lame dress goes up. But I imagine they were waiting on the steps of that venue, waiting for the paparazzi to turn up so they could then get involved in this high-speed chase and Harry could issue this press release. Reminded me once, I was at a wedding. Uh, it, it was sort of supposedly a society wedding and uh, because I was the only journalist that the groom knew, um, he asked me to say a few words about the paparazzi problem beforehand. And so I got up uh, uh, in the church and I said, ladies and gentlemen, Hughes asked me to say a few words about the paparazzi problem. The problem is there aren't any. So I'm looking for some volunteers. <laughs> got some cameras out back. Um, it felt a bit like that. Um, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, th supposedly they were filming it um, as it was happening, but they haven't released any of that footage to corroborate their rather implausible story. Presumably they're going to heavily edit it and then include it in part two of their Netflix series, but they yeah, can't yeah. release it before that. Well, many people speculated that they were chasing the paparazzi. That was one theory. <laughs> 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 uh, it, just it, carry on a... Harry on a motorbike, Megan in the sidecar, just desperately. <laughs> yeah, chasing the dummy car, someone in their security detail, yeah. Um, and that was one idea. And the other thing I heard was that it was so slow, this car chase, that at one point, one of the security guards got out. Did you hear that? Yeah. They got out, they were able to get out and stand on the street and get back in. So this high-speed chase. But why are they doing this? I mean, isn't it just like a Jussie Smollett thing? What, what possesses them? Because everyone knows it's a lie and everyone's responded to it. I'm not saying it's like, in t I'm sure there was a car and they were in New York, you know what I mean? But like, very basically, you know, not, not as they're describing. Why are, they, why are they even bothering? Isn't it because it, part of their brand is to present themselves as victims, you know? Um, right. it, they might well have quite a lot of money, several houses. She might be, uh, admittedly, rather fading television actress. She is, after all, a royal prince born to one of the most famous, if not the most famous, royal families in the world. So it's quite tricky 
to kind of get over the fact that they are, in fact, oppressed victims. Um, so um, I think the more they can manufacture stunts like this to create the impression that they are victims, uh, uh, the more they can kind of uh, pos position themselves and kind of promote that particular brand. Um, yeah. One story I was reminded of, which I got into trouble for telling um, about 15 years ago, when Elizabeth Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's daughter, she got married to Matthew Freud, uh, maybe about 20, maybe even 25 years ago now. Um, and um, someone who was on Elizabeth Murdoch's hen night told me that they were in a car, in a limousine, um, and uh, they were going from kind of club to club, and they were getting quite drunk and misbehaving. And um, at one point, the paparazzis got sent, uh, a paparazzi got, got, got sent to the fact that there were these celebs in this limo um, and stopped pursuing them. And Elizabeth Murdoch called the editor of the News of the World, which still existed back then, the picture editor, um, rattled off the number plate of this paparazzi uh, that was following them in a car, um, got his number, uh, and, then, and, then, and then called him up and said, you do realize that the, the limo you're pursuing has Elizabeth Murdoch in it, uh, Rupert Murdoch's daughter. If you don't immediately stop, uh, I'll make sure you never sell a photograph to any of my father's newspapers again. And literally screeched to a halt, did a U-turn, and shot off, burning rubber in the other direction. So if Harry, if Harry and Meghan were really being chased, then yeah, they, they, they should have had Elizabeth Murdoch in the car. Good call. Um, I feel like we're quite far away. This is, quite, this is actually the first time I've ever done the podcast in person, never mind live. This is the first time I've met Toby, actually. <laughs> It's a lot shorter than I thought. No, I was going to say about you. Um, yeah, we do it remotely, so this is weird. This is like we've, we've you know, two new uh, thresholds at the same time. Um, sorry, I think we pretty much nailed that. So, does anyone still like Megan? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a very low chance. Did someone say yes? The one, but it was a very low chance in this audience. But um, yeah, okay, yeah. One one sidebar is um, Harry is currently involved in six separate lawsuits most of them against um, British newspaper groups, but not all of them. Um, one is against the, the Home Office. He's got actually two against the Home Office, and one of them is because he wasn't allowed to um, pay for uh, police protection on his last but one visit to the UK. And lawyers for the Home Office argued it was not appropriate for wealthy people to be able to buy specialist armed police protective security, which seems like a pretty fair argument. But um, Harry is suing the Home Office for not letting him pay for special armed police protective security, which is... Um, talk about a sense of entitlement, but um, the, the cases against uh, British newspapers are all, I think, for supposedly engaging in criminal activity to obtain stories and publish stories about him in the past, things like um, phone hacking, um, uh, pretending to be him to get hold of medical records, that kind of thing, and it didn't go very well um, uh, last week when... Uh, in court, someone, um, uh, so a, a mirror, he, he, was, he was singling out a, an, art, an article in the Daily Mirror called, I think the headline was something like, um, uh, uh, Harry is a big Chelsea fan, and Chelsea was spelt C-H-E-L-S-Y, so it's about his first proper girlfriend, Chelsea, and Chelsea, da Ch Chelsea Davy. and... Um, well, I thought you just didn't know how to spell it. I thought it was like a David Cameron thing, you know? He, he probably supported West Ham, but it was Aston Villa, because the colours were the same. I thought it was like Chelsea... Oh, but anyway, so he, he was sort of... This um, Mirror newspaper executive was, was being kind of cross-examined 
by Harry's um, barrister in court. How did you get this story, if not by hacking Harry's phone? And he said, well, we ran the story on the Monday, and I got the story from the mail on Sunday. It was in the mail on Sunday the day before. It's like, so it's not going terribly well. <laughs> but I think, you know, if, 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 um, if these cases against British newspapers end up um, going badly, I imagine that some of those newspaper groups, particularly Associated Newspapers, the Daily Mail group, might decide to sue Harry for libel, for suggesting that they engaged in criminal activity in order to obtain these stories, when actually they just copied them out of other newspapers. Um, so it could, you know, it could go very badly for him. I mean, he might end up seriously out of pocket from this particular legal kite flying. All right, well, let's hope. Um, Suey, uh, it's a bit mean, wasn't it? A bit mean. Um, good luck to Harry. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully he'll move on from Meghan. I think he can still rescue it. He can still save it. If he comes and just says, I was brainwashed, you know what I mean? And I was like, I was traumatized. Does anyone know about, like, Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys? So Beach Boys my favourite band, I don't mind it, man. And uh, great band. And Brian Wilson was like, had this guy who was like, because he was a bit troubled. He had this guy, Eugene Landy, who kind of like just took over all his affairs. But he started drugging him more and more and giving him like more and more prescription. You're not, you know about it. And, and, and in the end, he was just sort of so drugged up. And Landy was taking over his affairs. He was doing the backing vocals. Anyway, that's Megan. That's my point. Um, she's, she's, she, I'm not saying she drugs him. We can't legally say that. Um, I'm just saying there are some comparisons with someone taking over your life and brainwashing it. That's all I'm saying. So I, I think I've told this story before, maybe even on this podcast, so indulge me. But um, someone told me a story um, that had been relayed to them indirectly by Tiggy Leg Bork, who was at one stage um, Harry and William's nanny. Um, so when William got engaged to Meghan, she had a, a lunch party so Meghan could meet some of Harry's oldest friends. And so she invited everyone, and before everyone arrived, um, Meghan asked to see the plasmol and started rearranging everything. She started putting couples with each other, as opposed to, and Tiggy explained that the English way was to separate couples at lunch parties, and she said, no, I don't like that. So she rearranged everything and slightly put Tiggy's nose out of joint and generally behaved in a rather totally unexpectedly high-handed way. And um, after lunch, Harry and Tiggy went for a walk, and Tiggy said to Harry, Harry, she's so charming, she's absolutely marvellous, oh my God, she's just so beautiful, you can barely look at her, but are you absolutely certain she's the woman you want to spend the rest of your life with? And apparently Harry went, Tiggs, Tiggs, I know, I know, she's a bit of a nightmare, but the thing is, she's just effing good in bed. <laughs> Shocking. It is a drug, but not the one you had in mind, so... Yeah. Keep, keep it church-friendly. Um, so... <laughs> I said effing. I said effing. Um, it, was the, it was all the content. Um, so, OK, probably we should... Maybe we can move on. To, does anyone, just quickly before we move on, does anyone believe that the Queen actually called Meghan evil? You do believe that? Because I was speaking to Quasi Quarteng, bit of a name's up there, top guy, rescued the economy, and um, I was... <laughs> <laughs> I'm and he said, dismissed. I don't think you mind me saying, he was saying, no, there's no way the Queen would have done that. No way, I know, I met her twice, there's no way she would have said that. And uh, I think she might have just said, she's evil, don't you think? No. Nah, I, I so. won't. Yeah, she's too nice. She, <laughs> okay, well, we're not sure on that one, we'll do a poll at the end. Um, I think we've done enough on that story. I've messed up my times, we went way over on that story. So let's, let's press on. So much to get to, guys. Did anyone go to NatCon? No, well, one at the back and just us two, okay. We're just, we're the, just the far right fringe. Um, so, um, NatCon, so NatCon, oh, okay, this might be boring then, we won't take too long. NatCon was, we do have a pop at Matt Hancock in this bit though, so that'll be good. NatCon, 
was a National Conservative, it was a three-day conference recently. Actually, I just went to the dinner and didn't bother going to the conference, but it was a good dinner. Um, and Douglas Murray did a speech there, and he got in a lot of trouble for it because he said, you know, we shouldn't be, what did he say, we shouldn't be uh, worried about promoting nationalism just because the Germans mucked up a couple of times. And uh, this didn't go down very well on Twitter, as you can know. Basically, they all called him a fascist. And then it all, people like the news agents. Has anyone seen that show, The News Agents? What a terrible name, and it's a terrible show. And it's Emily Maitlis and John Sopel and Lewis something, and they all say a load of blob, lib sort of bollocks. And, um, yeah. and, um, and this Lewis guy said, um, it was the politics of the pub late on a Friday night. Which I find like, it's weird that that's an insult now, isn't it? You know what I mean? Like, oh, never, oh, God forbid people talk in a pub about you know, political representation they might want. But that's, the, that's a slur now if you're in the blob. And um, Maitlis said... Emily Maitlis. If you look at what is uniting some of these flavours, which is hard Brexit, populism, nationalism, anti-immigrant, anti-globalisation, prejudice, just threw that word in there randomly, <laughs> anti-woke, yeah, 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 hose, like she's just throwing like random words in, you know what I mean, like trowel, she just said prejudice <laughs> in the middle of it, chips, uh, she, just, she, goes, she goes prejudice, anti-woke, bit of climate denial, anti-vax, maybe a little side soup song of homophobia thrown in, so she... You know, never mind that the you know, main speaker at the event, Douglas Murray, is gay. Just throw that in there. Oh, total nonsense. And then Matt Hancock, I'll let you speak in a minute. Matt Hancock, the most ridiculous bit was Matt Hancock came in and he was responding to a, a speech from Danny Kruger. And Kruger had said, the normative family held together by marriage, by mother and father sticking together for the sake of the children and the sake of their parents and the sake of themselves. This is the only possible basis for a safe and successful society. I'll be in trouble if they clip that now because I think it's just me saying it. How dare, how dare anyone say that the family's good? And Matt Hancock replied, it's so offensive, it's so wrong. I mean, tell that to the king. He doesn't have a normative family and he's absolutely a strong basis for society. What an absolute idiot. And he carries on. <laughs> imagine that, imagine this is the family being offensive to a conservative party. What are you talking about? And he, he, ca he carries on, he says, if Danny really, really believes that, I'm a tolerant kind of guy accidental partridge, but don't try and impose it on everybody else, thank you very much, and certainly don't try to give any impression that it's anything other than a complete fringe view within the Conservative Party. So the idea, <laughs> I know, so the family is the building block of society, which basically everyone believes, whether they say it or not, it's basically 90 something percent of people, even, you know, normies, the people I meet in North London, who all hate me, and <laughs> no, they don't hate me, they like me, but they, they, we, they voted Remain, and you know, the, the extended blob, and um, they, they would all say the same thing. So it's not a radical idea, the family. What's radical, it seems to me, Toby, is more just the idea that he's saying it, that you're not supposed to say it. So Hancock carried on. Why, after all, should we as the party, essentially of equal opportunity and of freedom, have a view on other people's marriages? Please, can we stop talking about this? Because it will put us out of power for a generation. So the idea is like, we all know that the, the family is, is normal, but you, you're not allowed to say it. What did you think of all this? Yeah, well, I, I, it was quite interesting. I mean. I thought that um, Matt Hancock's entire um, vibe in that interview... And that is a Matt Hancock word, vibe. That's pretty amazing. Guys, I'm just working on my vibe. His, I'm trying to have a more like, laid-back vibe. His demeanour um, during that interview was quite odd. He was very aggressive and sort of unapologetic. He was, you know, when he, when he was... You know, his, his, yeah, Matt Hancock 1.0 was kind of quite oleaginous, quite apologetic conciliatory, always laughing rather than engaging in kind of combat. Um, now he's become a kind of, Matt Hancock 2.0 is a much more aggressive, belligerent, won't take any crack sort of figure. And I imagine this, he's had some kind of makeover 
Um, and uh, so it was a different Matt Hancock on that program, and he was responding very aggressively um, uh, and in a slightly confrontational way. I mean, he actually melted down at one point. They, they, I, don't know, I didn't see the whole thing. I just saw the clips on Twitter. But um, in, in, in the bit you're talking about, I mean, clearly what triggered him about Danny Kruger's speech is that he felt it personally, you know, having, 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 having not... Having not Distinguished yeah. himself as a husband and father yeah. um, <laughs> during the pandemic. He he didn't he didn't take kindly to Danny Kruger's suggestion that um, the family is the essential building block of society, something that we can't do without. And if the if families begin to fracture and break up, that will that will be the end of our civilization. So clearly, he took that rather personally, and that's yeah. why he took such umbrage. Later on in the same interview... I've got to say, if you, if you, that's the obvious thing, isn't it? Of course, Matt Hancock's my favourite of the family. If I was him, I'd be so embarrassed to say an anti-family thing, anti-marriage, that's the first thing you'd say to him. But yeah, so he was very well, defensive. Lewis, whatever his name is, Good later old. on, later on, brought, he, 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 he started to ask him about his own behaviour, you know, uh, and the scandal that, that had, that had um, um, brought him down. Um, and he, he just refused to talk about it. He said, I'm just bored. I'm bored of talking about this. I think, can't we move on? It's just boring. I'm bored. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, and Lewis, you know, in, in, in fairness, um, did, did said, yeah, well, you may be bored of it, but, you know, you did behave quite badly in office during the pandemic. You were one of the quad. I mean, you know, I think we deserve some kind of explanation. I fell in love. I fell in love. Let's move on. It's boring. Um, so it was, a, it was a different Matt Hancock, but um, I, I think the, I think, I think, I think the, there are, I think you can um, uh, legitimately criticise one interpretation of what Danny Kruger was saying. So I think the, uh, and that seemed to be what Matt Hancock, uh, how he'd interpreted it. I think his interpretation of what Danny was saying is that um, uh, heterosexual, conventional families are the building block of society, of our society, um, uh, and seem to be um, not exactly belittling, but saying other sorts of families. So, you know, um, uh, uh, same-sex couples with children uh, were, were less valuable than conventional heterosexual marriages. And Kathleen, Kathleen Stock made the same point in uh, an essay in Unheard about NatCon in a much more sensible reasonable way, because Kathleen Stock used to be in a conventional heterosexual marriage, but now lives with another woman, but her children, I think, live with her and her partner, and I think they recently had a baby um, through artificial insemination uh, or something along those lines. Anyway, so she, she said, she, 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 she thought that you could make an argument as to why families are very important and we should, we should be creating incentives within the tax system and elsewhere to try and encourage people to get married. And there's clearly uh, 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 an indisputable link between poverty and crime and broken families. Um, but, she said, let's, let's, be, let's have a more inclusive definition of the family and not, and not just talk about how important one particular type the conventional type of families are. And I think, I think that is a legitimate criticism, but I don't think that's what Danny meant. I don't think he was trying to be exclusionary in that sense. Well, I think Kruger needs to go around Kathleen's house and sort it out, get back, <laughs> get the normative family back in place. Um, <laughs> Three of the men do it, Nick. <laughs> uh, this isn't being recorded, is it? Um, <laughs> what, what happens within the church stays within the church. Um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh, well. 
Maybe. I mean, I mean, percentage-wise, he might have meant that. I mean, most people are still heterosexual, right? So he might have just... That is normative in a sense, isn't it? The norm it doesn't necessarily mean better. It just means more well, common. I think, uh, I think it... Well, it, 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 it certainly is... Um, well, I think, I'm not quite sure of the stats, but the, the number I've of children um, uh, born out of wedlock... Um, or now from broken homes, I think outnumbers the number of children that are brought up uh, in, in, mar in, in, in families where the original couple have stayed married, as far as I know. Mm, okay. Think about the divorce rate is about 50%, maybe slightly higher than 50%. Power of control. So. Illegitimate children. We used to just drown them in the well. It was simpler times. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, that, that is a fringe view within the conservative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, well, and, and then... And then <laughs> oh, ridiculous. Um, so, and then was, there was a piece about it in The Daily Skeptic, Dr. David McCrogan, and he was sort of saying, yeah, it's good that at least conservative, the conservative movement is finally getting itself together and realising it has to do something, has to mount some sort of defence. And then, then there was also Lord David Frost's piece in The Telegraph, saying that basically it's, national conservatives are a good thing, we disagree on some aspects of the economy, but we basically agree on, you know, social conservatism, more or less, and the sort of, uh, the na and, and, you know, the need for the nation state. Although I think that gap might be wider. I mean, Frost is basically, as far as I can see, a kind of Thatcherite. There seems to be a pretty big gap between him, which, which McCrogan was emphasising more in, in The Daily Skeptic, between him and the kind of, this, this economic nationalism, it's kind of like a Steve Bannon phrase. And, and NatCon is an American thing. It's founded, it's not a, a Nazi thing, because it's founded by a Jewish person. You know, Twitter didn't seem to care about that nuance. But, um, but it is a, a sort of uh, American thing. And, and, and I suppose it's the idea of free markets kind of failed in its current form. And you've got Bannon with his economic nationalism, which is basically like Bernieism, but with, with, with a slightly more, less socialisty, less woke approach. And I think that's what NatCon is kind of about, isn't it? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think there is probably, well, certainly at the NatCon conference, um, which I attended, as well as going to the gala dinner for, um, there, 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 there did seem to be um, various kind of um, unresolved disagreements kind of bubbling away beneath the surface. And certainly one of them was um, uh, a kind of conflict between old-fashioned Hayekian Thatcherite economic liberals and economic nationalists who thought that some protectionism was probably uh, valuable. And, and, and the people who were kind of most passionately opposed to um, our currently out-of-control levels of um, internal migration um, seem to be siding more on the economic nationalist side than the economic liberal side. So, I mean, one of the... I thought Macron was, was, was fantastic, and it was, you know, it was uh, lots of really interesting people, interesting ideas, much more interesting than anything happening on the other side. Um, but it might have been even better if there'd been an opportunity to kind of thrash out some of these kind of internal disagreements kind of on stage um, instead of just, you know, in the bars... Um, after hours, but um, uh, not to say that national conservatism won't take off as a movement because it has one or two kind of tensions and internal conflicts, because after all, you know, there are numerous internal disagreements and contradictions within the woke church, and it doesn't seem to have impeded its kind of uh, meteor-like velocity at all. So perhaps in some respects, you know, it's helpful to encompass kind of, you know, different points of view about those sorts of issues within a movement. Okay. Well, it's good that we're at least trying to do something. I mean, we finally entered the battle, which is good. 
Um, yeah, okay. Well, I think we should move on from that. Tobin knows more about it. I didn't go because I've, I've been out three nights in a row. It's a long story I can't talk about. Um, I've been at a secret event that I then wrote about and got in trouble. But anyway, we don't need to go into that. It's totally secret. But um, yeah, so I didn't go to the conference. But how was your panel? Was it good? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was good. I did a lunchtime one, um, which was advice to young contrarians. Um, oh, nice. And absolutely a lot of young people there. If they're contrarians, they surely won't listen to someone like you. They'll be like, I'm not listening. Isn't that the most contrarian thing to do? <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Um, uh, and, um, and then another panel called The Restless Right. Uh, and there were about sort of half a dozen of us. But uh, yeah, it was good. It was good. Uh, I obviously gave a, a great speech, not yet available online, but I'll be tweeting the hell out okay. of it when it is. Well, let, I'd like to see how it compares to uh, Constantine's speech. But, um, yeah. um, <laughs> Won't you, get as many hits. Always beats Toby somehow. But um, it's, that, it's that dark Yeah, Russian, I called Russian Constantine's money. bankers, by the way, and said, you've got to demonetize this guy. He's <laughs> <laughs> got too many hits on YouTube. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll get on to it. We'll get on to that. Let's do... Um, Let's do uh, this immigration thing, because it, it's sort of related. So Rishi Sunak says immigration is too high. Oh, that's nice. But he says he won't put a number on plan to cut it. So, so uh, yeah, so Rishi, there's this upcoming figure coming out on Thursday, I think it is, that's basically going to end the Conservative Party, because it's going to say that net immigration is so insanely high. Not that this is some sort of anti-immigration rally tonight. It's a light-hearted news show. But, you know, it's going to be something like, what is it, 700 and something thousand? It's completely mad. So Independent has here... Um, Richie Sunak believes immigration in the UK is too high, says he wants to bring it down to the level below the level he inherited. So he's already trying to distance himself, I inherited this, guys. So the Prime Minister insisted he would not put a number on it, but suggested he may cut immigration to below the level it had reached when he entered number 10, around 500,000 net arrivals a year. But Downing Street dismissed speculation that half a million figure would be set in stone and said the PM was not committed to a specific target. Sunak also declined to commit to cutting numbers by the general election, which is expected next year. The PM is under pressure after apparently abandoning a Tory manifesto commitment to reduce net migration to 2019 levels of around 226,000. The net figure exceeded 500,000 in the year to June 22, roughly doubling, and new figures during the coming weeks are widely expected to show a further increase. Sorry, that was a bit long, but basically, immigration's out of control and Rishi's in big trouble. Yes. Um, I mean, it's, it's quite something, isn't it, when... Um, uh, Rishi's idea of a, an election-winning pledge is to reduce net migration to below half a million a year. Um, when David Cameron, um, not 13 years ago, his pledge was to reduce net migration to the tens of thousands. So there's certainly been um, uh, a bit of a sea change there in what people imagine uh, can be done. Um, I, I'm, I was slightly suspicious of the um, claim that when these figures are published by the ONS next week, I think it's next Thursday, isn't it, um, that the, the figure's going to be somewhere between 700,000 and a million, which would obviously be a record-breaking number, even if it's at the lower end. Um, I think the number in, this is for 2022, so the number for 2021 was 504,000. Um, but I suspect this may be a bit of expectation management, and the actual number will probably be a hair or so below 700,000, so they can claim it as, as an unexpected victory. Um, because, of course, you know, the, the government will, will know what the numbers are. And I suspect what, how Rishi will explain uh, that, you know, almost 700, but not quite 1,000 figure, is that he inherited um, this figure of just over 500,000. And the reason it's so much higher this year is because of all the Ukrainian refugees that have been admitted to the UK. So in the, I, I checked this stat before coming out, and as of February 2023, 163,500 Ukrainian refugees have settled 
um, in the UK. And I expect he'll try and spin it like that. Immigration hasn't gone up since I assumed power, but I have, of course, given a safe berth to these beleaguered Ukrainians, yeah, uh, bit, and no one could possibly argue with that. I think that, that, that'll, be, that'll be, I think, what his... Well, I, I could be completely wrong, it may be a million, but that, that's what I think the government is up to. No, it's tough to go send them back when it's the Ukrainians, isn't it? It's, it sounds bad, doesn't it, you know, with the whole war thing. Um, and um, also, also and the other people, there's the people from Hong Kong as well. Yes. Um, I, I think one, 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 one thing that's going to become apparent, I think, oh, you know, on Thursday, people, and it's sort of already becoming apparent, is that all the focus has been on the small boats arriving, um, who are, of course, illegal migrants. And there's the illegal migrant bill currently snarled up in the House of Lords. Um, and one of Rishi's five promises is to do something about the small boats. But actually the um, percentage of the total made up of illegal immigrants is actually quite small. Um, the vast majority are legal migrants, and the reason there are so many legal migrants is in part, I mean, I blame um, uh, uh, Brexit. Uh, sorry, I... No, I <laughs> Save it the time. Uh, no, I, 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 I... Of course, I, I blame the pandemic, um, because um, one of the reasons um, we keep having to issue visas to hundreds of thousands of migrants is because lots of British members of the workforce aren't willing to do jobs that they were willing to do before they were paid to stay at home and do nothing. Lots of people approaching retirement age have decided to, to, to retire and not return to the workplace. I think, and there was this sort of general plan, Fraser Nelson's written about this, um, uh, along with Brexit, um, to try, if, if we were going to restrict inward migration, um, uh, that would mean that uh, wages for low-skilled, semi-skilled jobs would go up and they would be willingly done by British people and British people would come off um, universal credit and do some of these low-skilled uh, but not such low-paid jobs anymore. That seemed to be the plan. That was Boris's vision for Britain's post-Brexit future. We'd be less reliant on guest workers to do things like pick fruit because it'd be slightly better paid. Um, but of course, you know, the British public uh, isn't particularly willing to pay higher food prices, particularly when we have runaway inflation, when tax has never been higher, when food prices are increasing because of the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis and all the rest of it. So that plan has now been junked. So the, there is no alternative as far as, you know, the Treasury is concerned than to bring in all these guest workers each year. But actually, a lot of the legal migrants are students. I, I, did, I ran across this astonishing figure, which is in the year to December, of 2022, uh, 485,758 students uh, were issued with visas. That's almost half a million students. And apparently more than a third of all the students in Britain at the moment are non-British nationals. And not only were half a million visas issued to students, uh, uh, but in addition, 135,788 visas were issued to these students' dependents. And uh, Suella Braverman put forward various proposals in Cabinet um, uh, uh, earlier this week um, to suggest ways of reducing legal migration. And she, one of the things she suggested was, she said, well, let's issue fewer of these student visas, and particularly fewer to their dependents. And that was heavily opposed by Julian Keegan, the Education Secretary, thinking about the financial health of universities and higher education institutions. But in addition, um, Suella said, well, if they drop out of their courses, 
can we withdraw their visas then? And there's great reluctance to do that. But what if, they, what, if, what if they want to stay in the country when they've graduated? Can we revoke their visas then? No, I can't do that either. So um, there are lots of things we can do to reduce legal migration, but I think Rishi Sunak's, rather than pick these fights and actually get in, make some tough decisions, which could be unpopular with you know, people like Matt Hancock, uh, instead, I think he's just going to focus on the small boats and see if he can do something about that. But legal migration, I don't think it's going to change. Okay. Well, that was quite involved for a live, light-hearted show, but we've got a lot, <laughs> no, a lot of information. Um, <laughs> and were you filming there? Do you mind uh, not putting out the bit when I said about the kids drowning in the well? Can we... Uh, I just saw someone... I'm thinking, like, they could release out-of-context stuff about it. I mean, in context, it was it's pretty bad. Um, <laughs> out-of-context. Even when I mean, they thought NatCon was bad. Um, so, by the way, just quickly on that, does anyone think the Tories can win the next election? Yeah. Oh, you do? You do, they still do it? Well, you, with Rishi, how, how much will they, how close will it be? Or... Okay, all right, Paul, confident. Anyone else? No? Yeah, or one person you think they can do? What? They don't deserve it, fair enough, fair enough. I'm not gonna vote for them. Um, I'll probably vote for some obscure Christian party again. Um, who's... Who, I mean, I, 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 no, let's just canvas. Who okay. would vote Tory in this room? No one wants to admit it. That one guy again. Um, <laughs> who's going to vote Labour? Obviously not. Who's going to vote Reform? Yeah. Oh, OK. Reform doing well. I did a podcast with Richard Tice on my other podcast. Check it out. Not the time. Um, reclaim. Anyone going to vote for Reclaim? Oh, okay. Reclaim. All right, cool. Um, Christian People's Alliance. Never mind. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, they're good. They're a good party. They, they said um, we wanted to, uh, they wanted to make London safe again, right? Good idea. Uh, tax big tech companies, yes. Uh, observe democracy. This was the last election. means get Brexit done, absolutely. And protect the lives of the unborn. Who can disagree with any of that? Anyway, um, throw that one in last. So let's, let's move on and do our, our next story, which Toby alluded to before, which is that Trigonometry got their bank account shut down. Uh, quite shocking. And um, so they, they tweeted today, Trigonometry bank account shut down. Dear Oliver Prill, the CEO, I guess, could you please explain why your bank tied business is shutting down our bank account with no explanation, despite a healthy balance and transaction history? And they sort of get uh, tied bank and given this really pathetic kind of response that just said, um, sorry, if someone's talking, can you, thank you. Sorry, it just puts me off when I'm doing my art. Um, um, sorry, you know, it's, it's fine. I'm used to stand-up comedy, I'm like, shh, I guess you can, it's a bit looser, but anyway, I'm very sensitive. So, um, it, so anyway, it's just, it's quite complicated. So Tide came back with a very sort of lame response and just said, as we develop our banking platform, we hope to be able to expand, this is probably the voice they use, we, we hope to be able to expand the range of companies we support, but unfortunately at this time, we will need to close your account. So it's a very kind of nothing-y response. But then, because so many people, you know, tweeted about it and said things, obviously because it's, you know, a big account, uh, they got some sort of uh, they got some sort of update on that, where they've said they're going to sort of investigate the matter as a the, as, as a matter of the highest priority. So they're going to investigate it, but we still don't know what's going to happen. And Lawrence Fox was tweeting about it, saying, you know, welcome to the club type of thing. Some people were saying, well, you didn't support other people when they were shut down. Uh, let's just see what Fox said. He had a comment on this because he got his what he got his what was it Toby? He got his bank account. You had some nuance on this. I think, I think the reclaim party did or do have a bank account at Metro Bank, but they, like Tide, they gave them 60 days notice and asked them to close it. 
Okay, so he basically, basically, Lawrence Fox was saying, look, it happens to us all. And it's, so they, they tried to close his account. I think he said he, he couldn't get a mortgage. His car insurance has gone up. Maybe he's just a crap driver, I don't know. But it sounds very, very sinister. And the fact, I, I point out, the fact that they can do this to basically a centrist podcast, and I was being generous with Twiggin' Oddity, it's just a le- cent- centre-left. I mean, it's a... So, if anyone doesn't know, I actually invented Twiggin' Oddity, but it doesn't matter, I never talk about it. Um, I mean, I, I, I had a podcast with Francis in 2016, 17. We can say this, because it's just us in the room. And then, lo, lo and behold, constant had a podcast with Francis and our producer and the same concert. I don't know how it happened, but um, the rest is history because they did much better. And um, I think Constantine did really well by not being mental was his secret. And, uh, <laughs> and incredible work ethic and, you know, and, and Francis is a good guy and, and they're doing very well. But, so I, I think it's absolutely absurd. And I said what these companies are essentially saying is that there can't be a plurality of views or even a discussion, right? Because if you're shutting down something as fairly, you know, what they do on Twiggin' is like, oh, let's hear your opinions, different size of people. That's all it is, really, isn't it? So if you're saying that they can't have a bank account, these companies are essentially saying there can be no other views. A bit like people were responding to NatCon, but even more sinister, because it's a bank. No other views, and not even a discussion. So really what they're saying is there can only be one view, one ideology, and it's a very new ideology, a highly destructive and toxic one, and that's the only one we're allowed. It's an absolutely insane opinion, and that, that's essentially what you're saying. And if you don't follow that, you'll have your bank account shut down, Toby. Yeah, it's, um, it's ex- extremely sinister, and it happened to uh, me um, in September of last year. So um, PayPal. Uh, notified me, um, notified the Free Speech Union, and notified the Daily Skeptic within 15 minutes uh, of each other, telling us all that because we breached PayPal's acceptable use policy, um, PayPal uh, was was permanently suspending all of our accounts. Um, and it was it was worse actually than what happened to. Um, uh, trigonometry, because at least they've been given 60 days' notice to kind of get their affairs in order and find some other banking facilities. We were just told that um, they were just closing our accounts, and um, for the time being, uh, they, they also awarded themselves uh, uh, the right to retain any funds in any of the accounts for 180 days, and also um, uh, to extract some in what they called liquidated damages, if there were any liquidated damages to pay. And, and they shut down your personal one. Uh, they shut down what? Your personal account as well. It was my personal account, the yeah. Daily Skeptic account, and the Free Speech Union account. And um, so, um, just as Constantine's doing now, um, I went to war with PayPal over this, um, talked about it on GB News, wrote about it in the papers. War, war. Got some MPs to write about it. And we managed to um, apply so much pressure and embarrass PayPal um, so publicly, and I think, I think it's not an exaggeration to say tens of thousands of people started closing their PayPal accounts. Some of you in this room, thank you very much. Um, and PayPal then did a reverse ferret and um, restored all three accounts and um, apologized for any inconvenience caused. Like, <laughs> tried to destroy two of my businesses. Yeah, so it was more than just a little inconvenient. Um, <laughs> I mean, literally, in the case of the Daily Skeptic, about a quarter of our regular uh, donations were coming via PayPal. Um, and uh, uh, in this Free Speech Union's case, it was a third. So it was really serious. It was an existential risk. Um, but uh, of course, we're, we're not now just going quietly. We're not, we're not, we, we haven't made friends with PayPal again. Um, we're now lobbying the government as best we can to either change the law or change the financial regulations to make this kind of political censorship 
by financial services companies, big payment processors like PayPal, to make it um, uh, illegal, um, or at least against the regulations. And we are making some headway. We need to stop. We need to stop the emergence of a Chinese-style social credit system in this country. Uh, we, need to, we need to be very firm about it. These payment processors, these banks, cannot, cannot decide arbitrarily that if they disapprove of your views, they can just withdraw banking services from you. It's a very sinister form of cancel culture. We saw Justin Trudeau try it in Canada to try and snuff out the trucker protests. So we really need to draw a line and say, no, we're not going to accept this. It has to be outlawed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the only other alternative is you have a load of cash on the pillow, but then we get into the cashless society. <laughs> cashless society is coming, so you can't even do that. You can't do that. So, yeah, they control your opinions via your money. Incredibly sinister. So you sound a bit mad talking about it, don't you? But that is literally what's happening. So what can you do? All right, should we move on and do this one about Radio 4? I thought it might be interesting. There's loads of big stories there. We haven't even had time. Like, Schofield's gone. We haven't had time to cover that. Shocking news. <laughs> Schofield. I had a bit about Schofield. As soon as it happened, and I'm going to find this and tweet it, because I was against him. You know, remember when he... Uh, when he sort of came out that he cheated on his wife and he was, he was going to go out with this guy now and everyone's like, oh, it's so brave. I was like, why is that brave? And like, to waste 27 years of your wife's life with a, a charade. I was like, so I had a whole stand-up bit saying it. So I've been against Schofield since then. But weirdly, you were supposed to be pro him then. That was the thing, wasn't it? You had to be totally pro Schofield. Oh, he's so brave and he's, because he's gay. What? And then it turned, now it's turned to, well, I'm not even allowed to say what it is because I don't know what we're legally allowed to say, but it doesn't, it's not looking great. We say that, it's not looking great. Um, do, you, and do, do, do you remember that great clip? I'm sure some of you saw it when, when um, Barry Humphreys um, sadly died a few weeks ago. That great clip yeah. started playing on Twitter of him saying, was it Dermot O'Leary? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's sort of pretending he'd, he'd mistaken him for Philip Schofield. <laughs> I just want to say how brave I think you are. You're such a brave young man. It's incredible. You're an example to us all. And, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the internet's so dumb. Everyone's like, oh, I can't believe you got it wrong. It's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> One of the greatest comics of his generation is just like, oh, people are so stupid. Anyway, <laughs> luckily not you guys. Um, yeah, high level, high IQ people. Um, good people. So let's do, um, let's do this Radio 4 story. So Radio 4 has lost more than a million listeners in the past 12 months. As <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that was a bigger response than I expected. That was hilarious. That was like, no other room. Like, yeah, fuck the BBC. Um, <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Um, all my blob friends would be so good. Um, I do know people who work for them, and they try their best, but it is, it is dying. But um, yeah, Radio 4. And so um, flagship Today programme suffered a dramatic ratings decline. The Breakfast News show registered only, only 5.76 million listeners in the first quarter of 2023, believed to be its lowest audience since 1999. Listeners have complained that long-running shows such as Desert Island Discs and The Archers have lost their appeal, while Radio 4's comedy output has been criticised as stale, i.e. woke shite. Um, <laughs> so, um, I feel bad because my mum and dad love The Archers, and that's like their programme. Whenever it came on, we had to be silent, you know what I mean? Shh, the Archers. Dun, 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 dun. And we're like, like, you're trying to tell your mum something serious, you know what I mean? I got my A-level grade. Shh, it's The Archers. Um, <laughs> but now it's just probably like woke rubbish, I imagine. I don't know, I haven't checked. But it says the BBC refuses to, refuses 
to give out audience figures for any of its radio programs, preferring to keep them secret from license fee payers. However, Raja, if that's how you say it, releases breakfast show figures, which showed today's program's audience has dropped from 6.55 million to 5.76 million in the space of a year, a drop of nearly 800,000. So, Radio 4 struggling. Everyone's coming to the Weekly Skeptic podcast. And um, other shows are available. Toby, what is your take on this? Well, there was actually a really good, um, interesting take, I thought, by... Um, uh, a guy who calls himself on Twitter and when he writes a blog, Kapolov, but in reality is a, a publisher called George Hours. Um, and he, he, he's, a, he's a sort of um, like a kind of Noah's, a Noah's Ark type figure. All these authors that get cancelled by other publishing companies end up being published by George. But he, 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 he said this really interesting thing, I thought, which he said, the main symptom of our malaise, by which he means the kind of um, woke ascendancy is self-hatred. Every institution now hates what it is supposed to serve. The Labour Party hates the working class. Radio 4 hates the bookish middle class. The National Trust hates our heritage. The Church of England hates its loyal congregations. And I think that's true. And I think that's, that's really, I think, why um, Radio 4 has been struggling to hold on to its listeners, because the presenters, the producers, the editors clearly don't like the Radio 4 audience. They're constantly lecturing them, wagging their fingers in their faces, telling them off, uh, 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 telling them that they're privileged in virtue of being white. And they've sort of embraced these kind of racially self-flagellating identity politics. And it's not a bundle of laughs to listen to. I mean, it's not that surprising. But, uh, and, it, it's, um, and I think this, but I like, I like that analysis, that a lot of these institutions that have been captured by, you know, the the pink-haired conquistadors, um, uh, they, 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 they now hate the people that they were formerly, you know, they hate their customer bases, they hate their membership. I mean, you can see, maybe that explains why Bud Light, um, you know, hired Dylan Mulvaney um, as, you know, as a sponsorship partner. I mean, yeah. what and by the way, just, just quickly, Bud Light are sponsoring us tonight, I should say. <laughs> they are, I mean, we we're just actually... Wanted, we wanted to get in at the bottom, you know what I mean? We've got it... <laughs> just, just I said, we are Sorry. actually being sponsored by a fantastic organisation called Car26. I'm going to read out a note from them, but we're incredibly grateful. They're a fantastic organisation. They're taking on the anti-motorist Nazis. <laughs> um... But, uh, yeah, I mean, and it's true now of um, seemingly Miller Lite. I mean, Miller Lite, having seen what, you know, trouble Bud Light got into for uh, asking Dylan Mulvaney to endorse their beer, now seem to have produced this crazy ad, which we talked about last week, which said beer, in fact, was invented by women. Um, and, um, you know, it's outrageous that beer companies tried to sell beer by putting women in bikinis when women invented beer. Um, isn't it a travesty to treat the people who invented beer like this? It's just, I mean, unbelievable woke rubbish and um, uh, presumably just machine tool to antagonize the kind of, you know, beer-gutted, middle-aged, white, working-class men who actually drink this muck. Anyway, um, uh, it, but I think, that, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And we've seen this now, the latest, the latest um, uh, example of this is Adidas. I don't know if how many of you have seen this, this new ad. So um, Adidas, in its wisdom, has decided to try and sell its new line of one-piece women's swimsuits by hiring a man to prance around in them. Um, and, um, uh, you know, what could be more guaranteed to, to, to put off its kind of customer base? So I think that's what we're witnessing. 
not only institutions, but also large American corporations, seemingly particularly beer companies, um, have been captured by people who absolutely loathe and detest the customer base, the membership, the people who are actually paying their wages. So yeah, and my theory on the Adidas advert, by the way, was that um, because they represented Kanye, and they were in such trouble about that, you know, had a massive sponsorship with Kanye, and he's like the most controversial, they're like, oh, what can we do that's the opposite of Kanye? I know, a man in a swimsuit, you know what I mean? Like, that's <laughs> like trying to rescue your brand for the woke people. Um, but yeah, just on this Radio 4 thing, the brilliant Gareth Roberts wrote a great piece in The Spectator, and it, uh, like you say, they tell their audience off. He said, I turned on Radio 4, so he's got this theory that you can't go five minutes without being told off by Radio 4 in the 21st century. And so he turns on his radio, he said, how long did it take? Two minutes. An item from you and yours on herbal tea bags revealed that they were organic. Hurrah, but that they have too much packaging. Boo. Um, <laughs> and so he's saying you're, just, you're constantly told off. And he said um, the drama and comedy on Radio 4, formerly the jewel in its crown, is now unbearable, a repetitive sequence of ideological agitprop. The narrow whinge of diversity, equity, and inclusion hangs heavy in the air. I like that phrase the narrow whinge and that is really what it's all about and it's so sad because my mum would of course listen to Radio 4 now she feels alienated by it like so many people and why has the BBC gone out of their way as you say to alienate their audience and alienate Middle England which I say is a great compliment when I say Middle England it means salt of the earth people like my mum president of her local WI you know what I mean they sing Jerusalem on the fells how based is that <laughs> totally big I told my mum I was like so based mum she's like I don't know what that means but thank you um, <laughs> alright Toby since you alluded to it this might be an, a, a nice time to just ha have a quick word from our sponsor what do yes, you think yes indeed car so, 26 car 26 so I'd like to take this opportunity to thank car 26 for sponsoring uh, today's event um, car 26 which is headed by the indomitable uh, Lois Perry um, has become a force to be reckoned with uh, in the climate debate uh, launched less than two years ago Lois is relentless in her pursuit of free speech uh, when it comes to issues around net zero and her courageous approach in the face of cancellation is empowering many others to vocalize their skepticism of both the claim science and policy positions and I would urge you to introduce yourselves to Lois uh, on the way out after the show. If you haven't met her already, they've got a stand at the back of the foyer. They can give you more information about this fantastic organization, which you really should support. If you want to check it out online, it's cop26.org. Um, car 26, Toby, car 26. Car 26.org. <laughs> oh, no. You can't, we'll we'll you cut can't that bit out from the, the broadcast version. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> just, anyway, just do that bit again. Car 26, fantastic organization. Please do check them out. And if you want to check them out online, it's car26.org. Thank you. Thank you for Lois. <laughs> Thank you, Car 26. All right. Thank you to Lois and Car 26. Never say Car 26 in here, you just, the whole place melts down immediately. <laughs> um, so. Brilliant. All right. Well, I thought we could move on and, and do our, a little section we sometimes do called Birdwatch. We're just about a little over. We're doing all right. And um, we don't really have the sting. So how about this? I thought if I introduce Birdwatch, just humor me here. I'll say Birdwatch and then you guys all do your best bird noise. And we'll see it. We'll just see how it goes. So, so let's do a section we occasionally like to do. It's Birdwatch. <laughs> that was actually pretty good. That was actually good. We could use that. Thank you very much. Um, so for Birdwatch this week, I thought we'd look at Elon Musk. Did anyone see Elon Musk's interview with CNBC? Okay, so it's brilliant. So, so basically, uh, Musk had tweeted that George Soros reminds me of Magneto. 
Which was hilarious, right? He's saying he, Soros is like the X-Men villain, Ragnito, if you're not familiar with X-Men. He said he wants to erode the very fabric of civilization. Soros hates humanity. So he wasn't holding back, to be fair, but he, it's good when you, when you own the platform, you pretty much say what you want, right? So, and he said, and this guy grilled him on CNBC. He couldn't really understand why he'd done it. He was like, oh, you know, some people might not like it. What if uh, people who buy Teslas don't agree with you? And what if advertisers of Twitter don't, might not agree with you? And uh, Elon Musk did this incredible thing. He waited a full 12 seconds, which is a long time in, a, in an interview, live. It's like, if I waited for 12 seconds now, it would be weird, trust me. I'm not even going to risk doing it. He just stood silently for 12 seconds and was like... See, it's weird just already, you know what I mean? Like, it, and he was thinking, and he eventually came back and said, uh, I'm reminded of... There's a scene in The Princess Bride. I was like, that's, a, <laughs> well, that's absolutely ridiculous. The second richest man in the world takes 12 seconds and then quotes The Princess Bride <laughs> and gets the quote wrong, but <laughs> was still absolutely legendary. So he said, I'm reminded of the, a scene in The Princess Bride where he confronts the person who killed his father and he says, offer me money, offer me power, I don't care. And um, the actual quote, by the way, is, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. But... <laughs> <laughs> Second richest man in the world, doesn't matter, you know what I mean? Who's going to pick him up? And the interviewer just was silent, befuddled, he went, so you just don't care? And he was like, no, I'm saying, I'll say what I want to say, and if the consequence of that is losing money, so be it. I suppose that's fairly easy when you're the second richest man in the world, but it is still pretty cool because obviously they're all saying, oh, why? And what they're saying, and it was really fascinating, they're saying, like, you can say this, but why, why are you doing it? And there was a really interesting tweet on this I'm going to try and find live in front of 250 people. Uh, by, yeah, it's a Twitter account called Bennett's Phylactery. Phylactery, I don't know how you pronounce that. And, it's, uh, and he made this interesting point. He said, many, many right-wingers are not right-wing. They're just 90s liberals with Asperger's. <laughs> <laughs> who expect the system to follow the publicly posted rules. And this is really interesting because Musk actually says in the interview, what, I'm allowed, he goes, this is freedom of speech. I'm allowed to say, say what I want. He actually said, I'm allowed. And what he's missing is that, yes, you're allowed, but you're not actually supposed to. You know what I mean? Like, don't actually say what you think. Like, hey, George Soros hates humanity. He's like Magneto. But that's what he did. Toby, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think, um, I, I mean, Elon Musk, is a, he's, he said himself that he has Asperger's, right? Um, so he's definitely on the spectrum, but he probably didn't need to tell us that. Someone said what? By the way, uh, someone wrote a review of this podcast saying three men on the... Best spectrum. It's good to see like representation. <laughs> anyway, so carry on. Um, but um, uh, yeah, and I think I think um, you know he, he doesn't quite understand um, the unwritten rules. Um, I mean, I think uh, a, 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 there was a piece in Quillette, a magazine I used to work for a few years ago, by an evolutionary psychologist, and he was making the argument that um, woke speech codes on campus. Um, are actually quite, they're supposed to be inclusive, but they're not as inclusive as the people who design them imagine they are, because they exclude people who are on the spectrum. They, they exclude people who aren't um, neurotypical, because if you're not neurotypical, if you're on the spectrum, then as Nick just said, you're very good at finding out what the actual rules are and following those rules, but the unwritten rules that you're just supposed to pick up via osmosis, they're very poor at picking up those things, so they constantly trip over on these kind of woke campuses. They trip over these unwritten uh, rules and get into trouble inadvertently, and I know from all the work I've done at the Free Speech Union that we, we're constantly uh, uh, looking after people who've completely unintentionally 
got into trouble because they didn't realize um, that there are just certain things you can't say. It's not written down anywhere that you can't say them, but if you say them, you're going to get into trouble, and they just hadn't picked that up. Uh, and I, my, 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 I think Elon Musk is right. He can get away with it. He is the second richest man in the world. He owns Twitter. Um, but um, for people who aren't quite in his position, join the Free Speech Union. That's the way to protect yourself. We'll look after you. Yeah, and the, and the other interesting thing he said was that work from home was a moral issue. It was kind of like a similar point that people made during lockdown because he's saying, well, hang on, the people making your stuff can't stay at home, you know, the, whoever, whatever it is, the people making your food can't stay at home, why should we get to stay at home? I thought that was a pretty good point as well. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, yeah, I thought it was a, a pretty good point and um, completely wrong-footed. Um, the interviewer uh, just didn't know how to respond, uh, presumably because half his staff are constantly working from home, so he couldn't bring himself to agree with them. But yeah, I think it, it was. I think people who do work from home and say, "I don't see why I shouldn't have to go into the office. I can get everything I need here. I can get someone to bring me my lunch. I can get someone to come and pick up and do my laundry." I mean, yeah, it's it's fine if you're a member of the laptop class, but it does mean that lots of other people have to work that much harder to kind of, you know, and it sort of creates this kind of master-slave relationship with the poor people who can't work from home, having to kind of wait hand on foot and kind of service the people who can work from home. So yeah, I think, he, I think he's making a good point about the kind of class divide that characterizes many parts of American society. Now, if you, if you can't work from home, you're basically lower class. Yeah, it was a great point. Musk is basically one of our, I think he's one of, some people say like, oh, he's, he's controlled opposition or so. I, th I think he's, some of the team James people say that, but he's basically one of the, our only hopes to win this uh, whole culture war thing, I think. But um, and there was, the only other birdwatch thing I had was uh, Mick Hucknall from, <laughs> I know it's mad already, isn't it? Someone um, remembered. Great singer, but um, you know, not, his opinion's not so good. Uh, he, he wrote here, the Conservative Party are now fascists, literally. Britain is governed by fascist scum, full stop, scum, all caps. Uh, this is a fight that decent people in this country must not lose, caps. So, a bit of a uh, meltdown there for Mr. Mick Hotnot. It's quite funny that people think that, isn't it? And I know people who think that. People in my football team will tell me that, the, the, or post in the group, that the government is far right. I'm like, this is the most left-wing Tory government we've ever had. It's like, basically, so woke, social, eco-socialist. And they think they're far right. And I'm like, this is insane. These are like smart people. And then they say this. Two people I know said that Jacob Rees-Mogg belongs in jail. And you're like, for what? And they, they can't actually say. It's a kind of a mad just derangement. And so Hucknall, it's a kind of projection. They have a sort of phantom idea in their head. They're like, you're fascist. And it just doesn't exist. It's madness. Yeah, but Evelyn Waugh um, uh, had this great remark he made, which was people were constantly saying um, that the conservatives wanted to... Uh, set the clock back. That was the big criticism of conservatives, you know, in the 1940s and 50s. They wanted to set, set the clock back. And Evelyn Moore pointed out that no conservative government elected in his lifetime had set the clock back by a single second. I think that's certainly true of um, <laughs> this present conservative government. Yeah, I could, I'd like to set the clock back at maybe a few hundred years. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> based. Um, all right, well... <laughs> Sorry to interrupt the show, but we have a quick word from our friend Thor Holt, who says, Great podcast, an antidote to the usual political misery. Great podcast, absolutely loved it, brilliant chat. But what are these wonderful sceptic ravings to Thor for? Well, they're waxing positive about his guest appearance on Nick's podcast, The Current Thing. Long-term friend of the show, Annabelle, said, Absolutely bloody brilliant podcast with Nick, hilarious and laugh out loud. 
So sample the antidote to political misery, pop the lol pill with Thor and Nick by listening to The Current Thing, where the lads discuss this broken world and discover what makes Thor tick, including creating freedom exits, skill sex, how to negotiate a higher salary, buying property even when broke, and what he learned from talking to Scott Adams of Dilbert fame. And finally, as you bask in the post-show glow, connect with Thor at linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. And please note, a LinkedIn follow is not the same as a LinkedIn connection. Thor doesn't need more followers. He's not a cult leader, unless we class whiskey as a cult, in which case get in touch because there's a last-minute chance to invest very tax-efficiently in the new island distillery Thor's involved in from only £2,000, investment at risk, etc. That's linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt and the Current Thing podcast, which is available on all the usual platforms. And thanks for the plug, Thor. Now back to the show. So now let's do everyone's favourite section. It's Peak Woke. Um, do we need a sting there or can we... Will that, will that serve as a sting? I think that was quite a good sting in itself. I think that'll, that'll work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we have these little, you know, the podcast. Sting <laughs> means a bit of music. It's very showbiz, guys. You wouldn't understand. All right, let's do... Um, <laughs> It's that bit where it goes, yeah. Anyway, um, so let's do Pete Woke. So we've already talked about the Adidas one, which I was going to have, but Toby's kind of bagged it already, which is, you know, the swimsuit for men. You all saw it. It's totally mental. That's mine. My other good one. So Jadis Pinkett-Smith allegedly said it's white supremacy to not like the Cleopatra film, which would be very funny if true. But then I found out that she may not have actually said that. We want to be very factual on this podcast, so annoyingly she might not have actually said that. But... Uh, you want to be careful Will Smith doesn't march up to the front oh, yeah, of the stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've actually worked with him. He does get angry. Um, <laughs> did you guys know I worked with Will Smith? Oh, talk about it all the time. Okay, free <laughs> slap Will Smith. Good guy. He was a good guy. Um, uh, but yes, he, another one who's perhaps been brainwashed by his wife. Just, just putting it out there. Um, <laughs> more sort of beaten into submission. Not literally, we hope. Um, so, who knows? So, Queen Cleopatra. So... Decider.com, which is an important news website, uh, have said that Queen Cleopatra's audience score getting review bombed on Rotten Tomatoes isn't funny, it's racist. And of course, it is funny. Um, (laughs) Because people go on there, it's got 1%. It's It's actually got got 2% now. It was 3 when I saw it, so it's climbing up. But basically, people went on, because it's so awful, they review bombed it, and and it ended up at 1% audience score. And, and then there's all these things saying, um, it's not funny, and it's actually dangerous, and it's, like, not dangerous at all, and is funny. Uh, and so this happened. And so that's kind of my peak, well, the fact that they, not only that people were doing that, but people, well, that's, that's pretty base, but the response, people saying it's racist. All it is, people are sick of this Cleopatra because it's meant to be, as you probably know, a, a documentary that's factual, but Cleopatra's black, and so some people are like, well, that's a bit weird because she, as we the newspaper said, had Hellenistic characteristics. She wasn't black, basically. She was, and so it's a bit silly, and some people don't like it. But this decider.com have concluded that it is racist uh, because just saying that is, is racist. I don't know, somehow giving it a bad review is racist? I don't know, so what do you think? It was like when people said the only reason uh, the remake of Ghostbusters, in which all the central characters were played by women, uh, the only reason that was getting bad reviews was because of sexism. I think it's kind of like a last resort of the producers to explain why their latest thing is just completely bombing. They're going to lose a fortune. All their investors are furious. Like, it's not our fault. We made a fantastic film, fantastic TV series. It's just the audience. The they're, audience are wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. Yeah. So yeah. For um, noticing it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so my, my um, I've got two big works. Um, uh, so my first one is I don't know if you know this, but um, you're no longer allowed to call fat people fat. Um, uh, uh, apparently, except su- in this room. Just kidding. <laughs> 
Sorry, um, uh, Yeah, uh, and you're not, you, 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 I think we knew that. That, that was already taboo. Um, even an autistic person like me knew that rule. But, um, <laughs> it's good. but, but apparently um, the term obesity now has to be, we now have to consider, according to a convention of um, obesity specialists in Dublin, um, we should stop seeing obesity as being the product of um, gluttony, greed, um, uh, inability to resist temptation. No, um, it should be regarded as just a straightforward disease, and they want to call it chronic appetite dysregulation. <laughs> <laughs> so obesity is out, chronic appetite dysregulation is in. Um, and um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, um, do you think we've gone a little bit too far with the fat shaming thing? Uh, with, with making fat shaming completely taboo, Nick, because um, uh, Britain now has the third highest obesity rate in Europe after Malta and Turkey. And we're the back, government, baby. What? No, I just said we're back, baby. I was just saying, you know, it's, it's <laughs> one stat that we're winning on, you know. <laughs> Let's was, take uh, it. Yeah, so 28% of Brits, and I sound like Radio 4, don't I? Anyway, 28% um, of Brits are now obese compared to 1% in 1950, um, and 60% uh, are overweight, and that figure is set to rise to 80% by 2060. And this costs the NHS, on average, 14 billion a year. So um, maybe a bit of fat shaming is called for, who knows? I'm, I'm torn on fat shaming, because I was fat shaming. I've just lost half a stone, so I was, I'm big on it. Well, well done. <laughs> um, I was, you're doing well with your appetite dysregulation. I mean, it, that is what I have. I mean, I eat Conquered chocolate mousses late at night. That's what they mean. I mean, it's, I, I, I was fat shamed when I was about 15, quite brutally. And then I didn't, I was just, then I was thin for like 20 years, just purely on the basis of that extreme shaming. Uh, but now I've sort of lost it a bit and got a bit fat. And now, luckily, I work with Lewis Schaefer, if you've seen the show Headliners, who called me, called me up the night to call me fat and ugly at 2 a.m. And that was really helpful because um, it's helped me get back on my diet. And, like, the ugly part, I'm not so sure. That was more just giving me crippling insecurity. But, um, yeah, I'm sort of torn because it is horrible. But at the same time, we do need, it's not okay to be massively fat for you, for your health. And for, you know, people have to look at you. Just kidding. No, just for your own health. For your own health, the health of it. I say that as someone who's it's, it's been brutally bullied at school yeah. for being fat. So, you know, I'm torn. It's not very pleasant, but it's also... A, a, anyway, I'm torn, you can tell. Um, but that is pretty peak, well, chronic appetite dysregulation. And um, there was, maybe I'll throw in this one. The fact that... Um, the fact that Andy... Did we see the Andy Rourke diet from the Smiths? So the Smiths one of my favourite bands. Despite someone telling me today that I'd never heard of them, I only... Guess what someone wrote to me today? I've got to find this on Twitter. Did you see this? Someone had written to me, I'll lay odds you've never heard of Morrissey or the Smiths before he started flirting with nationalism, so spare us the lecture. And it, like, this guy thinks I got into the Smiths for the nationalism. Like, <laughs> like, I have every Smiths album. I obviously, anyone who knows me for about five minutes know I obviously like the Smiths. You know what I mean? I'm from the North as well. My, half my family's from Manchester. Such a weird <laughs> idea that, like, you're just in it for the nationalism of Morrissey. But, <laughs> But what, what's happened is Andy Rourke has died, the bassist from the Smiths, and now people are doing tributes, but because they're so woke and sort of annoying neo-lib, whatever they are, they have to write. So Krishnan Guru Murthy says, this is a nice tribute. I'm unable to find the words myself. A fear that these people I marvel at as a kid were only just a bit older than me and can go. My teenage love for the Smiths has already been shaken by what happened in later life to you-know-who. You can't even say Morrissey's name. And you have, it's, I've been shaken by it. And all these idiots, there was another one I got as well. They're, they're all very similar. They're all like 
we, oh, here you go, some guy called Phil Harrison. Sorry to hear that Andy Walker's died. I have a complicated relationship with the Smiths now, but that's because of their singer. Like, all right, spare us the virtue. Yes, you hate Morrissey, you're great people because you don't like Morrissey, but like, it's, like, it's pretty disgusting. You're doing a tribute to someone, you have to throw in. And by the way, I don't like the singer anymore because they never understood who likes Morrissey here. They never understood Morrissey. Morrissey's thing is always cared about the working class of England, and he's always maintained this is a discreet culture, this is a unique culture worth documenting and celebrating. And that in itself is very threatening to these people because they think oh, it's racist because they happen to be white. It's not racist, it's just someone celebrating their own culture. But they can't cope with this. And Morrissey, if you really know about it, has not really changed on that. He was a bit more fey in his presentation, then he went for a slightly different, more sort of masculine look. But he never really changed that. Now, in these people's minds, he was sort of, he was on their team, then he radically changed, but he didn't. He's always had a mixture of views, you know, obviously very pro-vegetarian, anti the monarchy, things like that. But he's always had his own mixture of views. But anyway, they, they freak out about it. Sorry, a little rant there for me about Morrissey, but what do you think, Toby? Anything on that? Yeah, no, I, I sympathise with you, um, uh, uh, as, I, as I normally do. Um, my last peak woke was, um, I expect most of you have seen this one, which is that um, John Cleese, um, who is something of a free speech champion. Um, uh, he is um, uh, adapting the life of Brian for the stage, uh, and it's due to be staged in London um, in the second half of next year. And they were having a run-through uh, of the script he's produced um, with the cast. Um, and uh, they came to the famous sketch um, in the life of Brian when um, one of the, I don't know, uh, one, one, one of the merry band of the People's Judean Front, or, or maybe it's the People's Front of Judea, announces that from now on they want to be called Loretta. Um, they, they, they've got womb envy, they want to have babies, um, they don't see why they shouldn't be a woman and treated as a woman in every respect. And, you know, John Cleese says, but you're a bloke! You know, and, and, and it was so, oh, no, no, I'm a woman, my name's Loretta! Very funny, funniest sketch in the film. Um, and unbelievably prescient. I mean, at the end, the conclusion of this kind of little communist cell is that actually Loretta is being oppressed because she can't be, she can't identify as a woman without antagonizing the Roman authorities. Uh, unbelievably um, uh, uh, prophetic. Um, but um, the actors um, in, in the show said, oh, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think you, can, you can't, this, this joke won't work now. Audiences won't stand for it, it's too offensive. And it was, it, it, I thought the interesting thing about that, and I, I, please, I don't think it's decided what to do yet. For all we know, it may just be a publicity stunt. They may sack the cast and get a new one that can do it. Uh, let's hope so. Um, but um, uh, it struck me that if, if the conclusion is that in 2020, 2024, as it will be, um, you can't say something on the London stage that offends upstanding members of the woke church, that that's just too offensive, too unacceptable, whereas it was acceptable to put on the life of Brian in 1979, when we were still a largely church-going country. It shows that the woke church is now more powerful than the Christian church was in 1979, which is quite something, if true. Shocking. All right. Well, that was Pete Woke. We're slightly over time, so I'm, what I'm going to do, I've drank too much water, so I'm going to go for a quick slash. But what we're going to do is a little, a little change for me. We're going to bring on everyone's favourite, of course, the editor of The Daily Skeptic, Mr... Well, not Mr. Who? What am I talking about? Mr. He's got a PhD. Let me welcome to the stage Dr. Will Jones. <laughs>
most interesting stories that have been published in the Daily Skeptic uh, in the past few days. Um, and, then, and then we're going to welcome a special mystery guest to the stage. So if you can guess who that might be, keep it yourselves. We hope it's a surprise for some of you. Um, anyway, so um, uh, Will, um, the first story um, you wanted to talk about was a story actually by Noah Carl, one of our regular contributors. Um, and um, it, 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 Noah's written about this extraordinary finding in a recent YouGov poll that even though the WHO has now given up the ghost on the idea that we're still in the midst of a pandemic, even the WHO has essentially said, OK, it's over, but something like 50% of the British population still believes we're in the midst of a pandemic, presumably why some of them are still wearing masks. Anyway, um, over to you, Will. That's right, Toby. Incredible survey from YouGov opinion poll. More than half of the British population think that the pandemic is still ongoing. Can you believe that? 56% of the British public, according to this poll, as Noah says, this is like Hiru Onoda, the Japanese World War II soldier who carried on fighting for his country long after the war was over. They're just, the Brits just can't seem to accept reality here. But it's interesting you should say that, actually, about the World Health Organization saying it's over. Because actually, what they did say is they said that the public health emergency is over. They declared that over. That was the thing they declared uh, in January 2020. But they, they unbelievably, the World Health Organization still hasn't said that the pandemic is over. They declared that on March the 11th, I believe, 2020. And still, in May 2023, they have still refused to say that the pandemic is over. So unfortunately, these 56% of Brits are actually seem to be following the World Health Organization's uh, statement on this, which, to, to my mind, is worrying in itself, because it makes me think, actually, that half of most, more than half of the British population are, really are following, maybe, the, the World Health Organization, which only gets, makes me more worried about what will happen if we start giving the World Health Organization more power. Will well, they just start believing everything they say? I, I sometimes think that um, uh, the reason we haven't really taken back control since leaving the EU is because... Uh, we're also, there are also a number of other international octopus-like organisations and institutions we need to leave in order to take back control, one of which is the WHO. Um, but where are we, Bill, Will, with, where are we with the, the, the pandemic treaty? Where's the, where, are we, where are we up to with that and how bad is it? The pandemic treaty is, is it's, so there's a, there's a new pandemic treaty they're hoping to put in place. Uh, the talks for that are still ongoing. 2024, I believe, is when they're, when they're scheduled to try and get that into place. And there's also, all, more importantly, probably, is the amendments to the international health regulations, uh, which, uh, which, they also, which they also want to do. And they don't need as a, a, a two-thirds majority for that within their governing body, just a majority uh, will do, so even easier to get through. Uh, the most worrying thing about it, there's lots of worrying things about it, but it basically gives the, the, the Director General of the World Health Organization the, the sole personal power to declare a public health emergency 
and they can declare that. At the moment, it has to be on the basis of an action emergency. It'll then be, it'll, they want to make it, and this is the proposal, so they can just declare this on the basis of a potential emergency. So just if they think that there might be a problem, and what's worse is that it has changed from advice and guidance that countries can just uh, choose whether they uh, follow it or not, um, to, uh, to legally binding uh, under international law. It will say that, that they must do what, they must follow the guidance, and it says that the World Health Organization and the Director General in particular can put down uh, guidance uh, that covers uh, vaccines, covers medications, quarantine, border controls, restrictions, the whole gamut of what we've had to put up with over the last three, uh, last three years, that they'll be able to put down this guidance and it says that countries must follow it. Now, some people say, ah, it's just international law. You know, international law is not really law. You can choose what to follow, whether you do or you don't follow it. Well, that's, it's true there isn't an enforcement mechanism, thank goodness, yet although you could be sure that they will be, do, they will be pulling all the strings that they can, all the financial uh, strings that they can. Uh, but at the end of the day, it will be international law. So governments uh, and, and lawyers and, uh, and judges, they will, feel, they will feel obliged to follow it, and they will say, no, this is, this is the law, the international law, you, are, you, are, you, need to, you need to follow this. So very worrying developments, uh, and, uh, and it needs to be opposed by all right-thinking people, I would say. Okay. Um, uh, to do with that. So another story we ran this week was about this um, uh, survey in Israel, which has discovered that the extent of vaccine harms are, is even more pervasive than some of us had feared. Yep, so this was uh, Dr. Eyal Shahar. Uh, I think I've got that right. Um, and uh, he is a, a professor of public health at Arizona University. And he has looked in detail at this survey uh, that they did in uh, in Israel. It was during the first booster campaign, so that's back in 2021. If you can put your mind back to uh, back, back to then, a couple of years ago now, and um, and they and they actually did something really uh, that we sh that we should really credit them for. They actually uh, took a random. They looked at their public health records. They looked up their phone numbers of 2,000 people who had uh, received the booster, and they phoned them up. Um, for some reason, they excluded anyone who'd had COVID. Don't know why, uh, but they but they 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 phoned up 2,000 people who'd had the vaccine, the booster, those so were three doses, and they said, "Tell us what side effects did you have?" And the results were frankly shocking, alarming, ex extraordinary. Two thirds of those they, they asked of, in this survey who responded to the who responded uh, said that they'd had at least one at least one adverse event. That's two thirds, incredible, um, and. Almost a third, 30% of them, said that that side effect that they'd had prevented them from carrying out their daily activities. Nearly a third of those, and this was a random sample that they took. Incredible. And, uh, but Dr. El says that that's, that's not the worst of it. The worst of it was that they, they asked how many had been hospitalised. And they said that six of the 2,000 uh, people that they asked had been had been hospitalised as a, a result of their side effect. That's that's an ex, that's an extraordinary number. Um, six out of two thousand. Once you multiply that up, we're talking about about one in, in every uh, one in every two hundred people um, or so. It, when you multiply that up to uh, to fifty million people, for example, having uh, the booster dose uh, in this country, 
um, well then we're, we're talking uh, tens of thousands, uh, even hundreds of thousands of people, um, so uh, who say that they were hospitalised, who report being hospitalised as a result of their of their booster, booster jab. Incredible number. Incredible number, and presumably, I imagine the reason people who'd actually had COVID, as well as being triple jabbed, were excluded from the surveys. So people who wanted to downplay, minimise vaccine harms, couldn't say, ah, oh, but those side effects may have just been after effects of COVID, symptoms of long COVID, rather than actual side effects of the vaccines. Yes, that's, that, that may be why they, they excluded it. But the, uh, the point that uh, Dr. Um, Professor uh, El makes is that, um, is that they, they, the, the government, so they did this survey, so they've got this data, which is, which, which is frankly a shocking data, um, and, and they say that, this, that they downplay it. You know, they say only a few of the people who had the side effects uh, had uh, went to hospital because the number was six. Uh, but of course, they don't point out that six out of 2,000 uh, for a vaccine is, is hundreds of times, hundreds of times higher rate than, uh, than a safe vaccine uh, would, would normally, would, would, would be acceptable. I mean, uh, far, far, rates far, far higher. Um, and um, so they, they just down, downplayed it. And he says, um, uh, and, and this is a quote from him, uh, from Dr. Eyal. He says, it is impossible to understand the mindset of public health officials who consider such fre frequencies acceptable for mass vaccination of healthy populations against a disease that is about as risky as the flu until around age 60 and in the healthy elderly. Shocking. Okay, well, thank you very much, Will. That's great. And now, ladies and gentlemen, um, assuming our guest star is um, ready. Um, uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna be joined on stage by. Um, uh, oh wait, is is he is he is he is he ready? Or is he um, is he still in his dressing room? Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Dr. Jordan Peterson. <laughs> So, Dr. Peterson, um, we're extremely grateful that you could join us this evening. Um, so, um, have you traveled far to be here? Well, thank you very much. And <laughs> firstly, can I just say, I've come from Canada, and it's a great honor to be in Great Britain, but not just in Great Britain, but in England, and then not just in England, but in London. And, and then you say, well, not just London, but this venue, which is a bloody miracle, by the way. <laughs> Because I, when I think of all the architecture and the blueprints and then the young men that had to work on the <laughs> venue, I, I tend to get emotional because when I think about the young men that had to work on this and in difficult circumstances, possibly with their shirts off and with surprisingly good muscle definition. Anyways. <laughs> When I think about the men who work on the infrastructure and they get no, they get no thanks from the bloody feminists. Anyways, <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is thank you for having me. And also, <laughs> and one more thing, it's a bloody miracle that we're here in comfortable chairs and not fighting each other to the death because we have something called society which the neo-Marxist postmodernists would tear down. 
the bloody woke moralists, and so I guess, uh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Peterson. <laughs> so, Dr. Peterson very kindly performs this service from time to time on the Weekly Skeptic, whereby he answers readers' queries, readers' questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do have a question from a reader. Uh, the first question, uh, Dr. Peterson, is, uh, Toby and Nick and you are my heroes, and my daily morning reading is the Daily Skeptic, even before my coffee. Should I seek help? Huh. Well, turns out to be a pretty complicated question, because... <laughs> On the question of help, well, firstly, you'd have to come and see me in my clinical practice, which I don't run anymore, so that, that's the first problem. And then <laughs> I would have to discuss many works by Carl Jung and Jean Piaget and other people that nobody cares about. And then, <laughs> then I'd have to diagnose you over a six or seven year period and come to a tentative diagnosis. And even then, it would be completely useless. So. That's this question of help. And on the other question, well, if you like Toby and Nick, you probably have pretty high IQ. And uh, <laughs> IQ is one of the best predictors of success, uh, along with conscientiousness. So, if, and of course, how much Russian art you have in your apartment. <laughs> As some of you will know, I, I like to have a lot of Russian art distributed around my apartment so I can witness the greatest atrocities in history while I'm on the toilet, and, um, which I spend quite a lot of time on because of my diet of exclusively meat. And so I guess what I would say in response is, is uh, it's good that you have a high IQ, you like Toby and Nick, probably slightly more, and... <laughs> That shows you have a high IQ, and then combined with conscientiousness, and like I say, how much Soviet atrocities are within your immediate field of vision, then, well, that's a pretty good start. <laughs> Hold that. Thank you, Dr. Peterson. So, one last question before we say goodbye to you and bring Nick Dixon back onto the stage, along with. Uh, Dr. Will Jones for a Q&A. He's, he's a bit far right for me, but anyways, carry on. <laughs> uh, one last question, which is, I recently attended the National Conservatism Conference, and even though the people there were quite moderate and thoughtful, um, uh, yeah. nonetheless, lots of hysterics in the liberal media condemned them as being fascist. Now, you yourself are planning to host a conference in London this autumn, with your new organization, ARC, are you slightly mm. worried, are you slightly concerned that the media response, the reaction to it, may be even more hysterical and condemnatory uh, than the reaction to NatCon? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's a pretty complicated question. Well, <laughs> one never knows how an event is going to be received, especially by the woke moralists on Twitter and the bloody idiots and the <laughs> neo-Marxist postmodernists. But... I'm less concerned about my event because it's less of a conservative conference and kind of more of a cult scenario. Um, <laughs> it's not, not necessarily the word I would use, but some people, anyways. So in my event, we'll, we'll be, the doors will be locked and, well, I can't give too much away at this stage, but there'll be a lot of young men uh, who are disaffected and abused by the culture and the bloody feminists and they'll strip to their waist. Um, 
Yes, that's, yeah, that's part of the contract. And, and <laughs> we will, the plan is to play, well, let's say a single uh, note on a synthesizer, uh, a kind of dirge, kind of, uh, which tends to derange them. And then I'll appear on the stage with a bloody massive backdrop and it'll say, pledge allegiance to the doctor. And well, anyways, I'm giving too much away of the event, but <laughs> obviously there are certain tenets as well. I mean, I wouldn't say commandments, that would be too strong, but there are certain tenets like, for example, no meat, no, sorry, no, no, well, you can't eat another vegetable, is what I'm trying to say. No vegetables and only meat, and then, of course, the, the entire event will end with uh, us sacrificing a body-positive fat model, and <laughs> while, we, while we gather in a circle and chat, not beautiful. Anyways. <laughs> So I, I hope that helps in some way. Well, that's very good. Thank you, Dr. Peterson. That's been fantastic. Thank it's you very much. to have you. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be coming to that conference. So, Dr. Jones, can we get you back on the stage for the Q&A? Can we get the mic? Can we get the mic here? Uh, I think we were going to have um, a microphone just here coming. Fantastic. Um, so this is, we, we had planned to allow half an hour for the Q&A, but we, it, it was supposed to end at 9.30. Admittedly, we were a bit late. So let's give it, uh, at least, let's give it 15 minutes, 15 minutes of Q&A. Um, and I think we're going to get Nick back on stage, are we? Any second, are you ready to join us? Nick Dixon, is he back? Uh, no? Well, we'll just kick off with the two of us, and Nick will join us in a second. So can we have our first... Uh, uh, who's going to break the ice? Who's going to ask the first question? You have to come up here and ask. I should just say before you before you take the final step, um, anyone asking a question, I think, will inevitably end up on camera, and we do want to release this um, at some point in the future on something. We haven't quite decided what yet, so there is a risk that you might be on Twitter or YouTube or something like that. So if you're perfectly happy with that, um, please come and ask some questions. Thanks very much. I'm Jessica. I've really enjoyed um, tonight. I'm a member of the Free Speech Union, and Toby, I just think that you have an incredible work ethic, and you inspire me as someone who works for myself, so I just think that's amazing. It's actually a question on behalf of my husband. Um, so we both used to listen to London Calling, and we're very much Team Toby, and Nick thinks that, obviously, James is very far down the rabbit hole, and we wondered, how long are you going to keep doing it? And why do you keep doing it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Je Jessica, that, 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 that's a very complicated question. Um, <laughs> uh, I've known James um, uh, since we were at university together. Um, and uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of history there. Um, He's one of, one of... Team James. Team James. <laughs> they said James is really cool. And he's really cool. Um, Great guy. Yeah. Um, uh, Great guy. I have to say, I have to say, um, one of the things that inspired me anyway to try and arrange this event was James telling me that he had held an event. Um, uh, it was like a, he was interviewing um, Neil Oliver on stage for the Dellingpod. Um, and he did it at the Emmanuel Center, but he did it in the 900-seater. Yeah. auditorium, not the 250-seater. And um, so not only did he sell 
800 tickets within about a fortnight. He sold an additional 100 VIP tickets. And what did you get for your VIP ticket? A selfie with James. <laughs> um, and uh, Toby can get that for free every day. <laughs> Yeah. Got loads um, of them. Uh, anyway, so, um, uh, but I, you know, I, I, I tell you why I think, um, even though, you know, we sometimes talk past each other, and um, sometimes when we're actually engaging, it can become quite heated, um, and he can be quite ornery and disagreeable and short-tempered and irritable, particularly with me. But I think, um, I think that kind of um, debate between the between people who think that all the calamitous events of the past three years are part of a broader conspiracy. Um, uh, and those who think it was essentially just the normal clown show, just one cock-up after another. That debate is taking place within friendship groups, within marriages, um, all over the world. And it's a debate which doesn't really get aired anywhere. I mean, it, 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 most, most people think that people who believe the things James believes are so beyond the pale, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be part of the, the conversation about what, what's happened to us over the past three years. I very much think they should be part of the conversation, and it's really important to have that discussion. And, so, and I think, critically, it's important that we're able to model, which I hope we do most of the time, that it's possible to disagree about that um, without falling out. Uh, because people are disagreeing about it and falling out about it all over the world, we try and say that it's possible to just fundamentally disagree about that really important issue um, and related issues as well, like how much hope is there? Do we need to tear everything down and start again, or is the system repairable? That, 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 that we want to be able to model how to disagree in a way which doesn't involve kind of just severing all relations. I'm just about managing to do that, so that's why we can't. Oh, well, I, I love that, and I think you're so patient with James, and I bet you really like the story in the Times today about Irene Tracy, the Vice-Chancellor at Oxford University, who is saying that she's not going to know platform Kathleen Stock, and he's saying it's really yeah. important that universities are a place of freedom of speech. Brilliant. Which yeah. is brilliant. Thanks no, so fantastic. much. Thanks, Jessica. We have another question. Gentlemen here. First come, first serve. If you want to ask a question, just come up to the microphone. Form a queue. We've got like 10 minutes. Apparently, they want to do a hard out, so let's right. try and bash it. Just a, a quick one. My name's Roger. Gent uh, a question for all three of you, but mainly for Nick and Will, because I suspect Toby might want to talk about this. But uh, I suspect there's a lot of people here who would like those in the Bojo cabinets of 20 and 21 to be held to account. Now, some of, some of us, like myself, feel that certain individuals should be prosecuted, but my question is, do particularly Nick and Will think that there's any chance of any of them ever being held to account, or am I just dreaming? Well, I personally think that... Good question. Thank you, Roger. Um, I think not, but uh, I sort of see it as a bit like the end of The Big Short, where, you remember that movie, where it's like one banker went to jail, some, some Swiss guy. I see that, I don't see any accountability happening. I think they're all getting away with, with, with Do you mean in terms of Partygate, or in terms of the lockdowns in general? The lockdowns, yeah. Yeah, I think everyone's going to get away with lockdown. I think people are like, people are just pretending, we had to do the first one, and the vaccines did, blah, blah, blah. I think they're sticking to that narrative, and I don't see anyone being held to account at all. What do you think, Will? I think we'll be, we'll be lucky to see anyone getting uh, prosecuted uh, for any, any of the uh, violations of rights. The fact is uh, that, that it's still seen by a lot of the people in influential positions as being, uh, it was the, they think it was the correct call, uh, even if they've got reservations, they won't express it. Uh, but, uh, but even, 
even if that view had changed, I think really what, all, what we're really just going to see is people just drifting away from that narrative. Uh, maybe the politics has gone against it, the popular opinion maybe has gone against it. Unfortunately, we're not seeing that as much as we would like, but we are seeing those politicians being voted out. Um, we are seeing people's expre people expressing uh, their, their anger, actually, about uh, what happened and what was done to them uh, more and more. Uh, so we, we are seeing uh, that people moving away from that position and a kind of abandoning of it, uh, and that we need to see that more and more. But the idea that we'll actually uh, be able to bring people uh, to court and to um, and prosecute them, I, I just um, uh, it's it's very hard to see how how that could get off the ground. I don't think there's anything in, in line, unfortunately. And just very briefly, I, the, the, a lot of the anger seems misplaced. It seems to be against Partygate. Like, oh, they broke the rules. Like, no, the rules were the problem in the first place. I mean, yes, Partygate was annoying, but it's not the main thing, is it? So. Uh, and we also, we've seen these polls recently that like, people still think we should have had harder lockdowns, especially young people, so it's completely insane. So it's great that you guys are all here and we agree, but unfortunately we are in a minority, so I don't... Psychologically, it's been very complicated for people the last three years. What they were put through, uh, what they were made to think and believe, the way it kept changing, the way they now look back on it. I think it's very, very complicated. But I, I was encouraged by seeing Princess Anne uh, really saying in, to, the, to the newspapers, being willing to say uh, how wrong, uh, and I can't remember the exact words they were, but how wrong, uh, how wrong it was what was done to the Queen and the funerals. And she said, oh, yeah, at the time it seemed okay, but she was implying that really now looking back it really wasn't. And I was encouraged by that, and I felt like it's psychologically complicated for people, but I just see, I do see uh, shoots like that that yeah, do give me... Absolutely. Mark, Mark, Twain, yeah, Mark Twain had a great line, which is it's much easier to fool people than to persuade people that they've been fooled. Um, anyway, let's have the next question. Let's do another question. Thank you very much. Thanks, um, Roger. So just looking around, I think I might be one of the youngest people in here. Oh, uh, we should be ringing some serious alarm bells for the future. Um, and I'm at university, and nobody at university, and I really mean nobody, challenges the mainstream media narrative. I'm talking climate change, lockdowns, whether it's phasing out cash, and even... Obviously, I didn't take the vaccine because I'm not completely nuts. We um, pure, pure bloods. <laughs> pure bloods forever. <laughs> Don't clip that. When I try to explain this to people, uh, at best, they think I'm crazy. At worst, they try and cancel me. Yeah. Um, and what I want to know... But you don't have myocarditis, so that's a bonus. <laughs> Anyone? Uh, Sorry, carry on. And I'm still fertile, I hope. <laughs> pure blood sperm. <laughs> <laughs> but as hard as I weird. try to wake these people up, um, they're so asleep, I, I like to call it, they're quite literally in a political coma. <laughs> That's how asleep they are. They will not listen. And I would like to know in your experience, because I introduced them to things like Yellow Card Reports, The Daily Skeptic, um, uh, Andrew Bridgen's speeches. What is the best avenue into slowly introducing these people to alternative information, well, the truth, yeah. uh, All right. because they won't listen. Great question, yeah. Toby. Good question. Well, um, well done for having the um, mental toughness to um, uh, maintain um, your unorthodox dissenting position. Um, I think um, one of the reasons it's, it's um, tough being at university at the moment is that that generation has really drunk 
the woke Kool-Aids. Yeah. They, they are worshippers at the woke church, um, fully paid up, self-flagellating members of Wokers Day. Um, but I think woke is peaking. I mean, I think there are some positive signs. I think the generation immediately below them are less enamored, um, uh, slightly more skeptical about these authoritarians wagging their fingers at them all the time and telling them they're privileged and need to make amends and apologize and pay reparations and all the rest of it. Um, you know, the highest grossing movie of last year was not Bros, it was not Strange World, it was not Lightyear, it was not She Said, it was Top Gun Maverick. So that's gotta be, that's gotta be a good sign. The Scottish tyrant has fallen. We saw Ron DeSantis and what, Youngkin win uh, landslide gubernatorial, gubernatorial uh, victories um, in Virginia and Florida, partly because they took on the teaching of gender identity ideology and critical race theory in high schools. Uh, so I think there are some reasons to be hopeful. I mean, I think it's going to be a long haul, a struggle, but um, you won't be alone for much longer. That's my prediction. Yeah. Okay. We have the next questions. We've got to get, get, get through a few if we can in the next five minutes. Hello. Um, first of all, I would like to say, before I ask my question, just very quickly to Toby, thank you to you and Ben Jones at the FSU. Um, Ian Jones. No, no, Ben. ben at the Benjamin FSU. Jones, sorry. Benjamin, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I yeah, because I had, I lost my job earlier this year. Right. Of something oh. I said at work, I did a, I said a boo-boo, and uh, Ben was so, so helpful. Um, so I just, the fact that I'm here face-to-face, -face, I'd love to thank you personally. Um, <laughs> Things are going fine, don't worry about me, everything's going quite well now. But, um, it was, anyway, my question is actually for Nick, because I'm always curious, particularly uh, comedian, you've, you've been in that world, a lot, of, a lot of those people do think alike, so what I'd love to know is, were you always conservatively inclined? If yes, this answer won't take long, or if, if not, what changed you? Yeah. Like, what was the... Was it a catalytic moment? What was the what was the thing that that? Yeah. Okay. I was, thank you. I was definitely radicalised by the comedy industry. I mean, it was because so woke. So I was always. I mean, I always thought for myself, hopefully, and not gone along with crowds and stuff. And then you find yourself in comedy just because it's a talent and you, you want to make people laugh. And then it becomes this weird other thing. And one thing that I kept coming up against was that you can't be a straight white man, you, you can't get an agent and all these other things. And I was foolish enough to speak out about that, then got piled on by the entire comedy industry, Jason Manford, uh, Three Under the Bus, Richard Herring, all these people, horrific sort of thing. A mini cancellation, as Toby calls it. I wasn't cancelled like Toby. It was a minor pile-on thing, pretty, pretty unpleasant. And um, that was kind of the culmination of it, but, but that happened for ages. You, you realize there was a ceiling in, in comedy because of your immutable characteristics, whereas I had this old-fashioned liberal idea. Call me a big liberal, guys, but I thought we should be you know, judged on the content of our character. And, on, and as I said in a tweet, the content of our content, like, are you funny? And I think this book, you know, it's an individual art form. So I would say if there's two gay guys and they're, they're not the same, Scott Kapoor and Andrew Doyle are not the same, we can have two gay guys. We can have three women if they're funny, it could happen. And um, <laughs> we could, <laughs> so, sorry, I just thought it had been too long since I got a laugh, so I just had to throw something in. <laughs> throw anything in, desperation. Uh, that's the comic instinct. But yeah, uh, but that, that was my idea. And I kept bumping up against that 
as well as a sort of woke group think in the industry. And I find it also disgusting. It's a backstabbing industry, cowardly. You see how people get canceled, people like Andrew Lawrence, people bully them. I just find it also disgusting. So, so I, I definitely became more that way. And not just the comedy industry, but the culture as a whole, like many of us. I started off, you know, I've written this article for Daily Skeptic, Confessions of a Conservative Rebel, and the whole point is like, hang on, I'm a guy that likes uh, postmodern novels and like alt-country music. It's like a, a weirdo sort of artsy-fartsy person who would have never been a conservative, but now suddenly I'm the conservative and my brother with three kids and a stable job, and, you know, and all the people, and they're the sort of, they're the liberals. And I'm very, very confused. So that's where I'm at. Just like a lot of people, I've sort of drifted over to now the, uh, the far right. Just kidding, just kidding, guys. <laughs> the moderate, slightly conservative, am I a conservative position? So yeah, hope that answers it. Okay, thanks, thanks, mate. Thanks very much. Also, thank you for reading my email out last week on martial arts. That was very kind of you to do so. Oh, martial arts? Oh, yeah. thanks for that. That's, no. T Toby needed correcting. No, well, that, well, happy to, happy he to was talk. bang out of order. <laughs> uh, I said I didn't know. So it's about martial arts Fair is enough. Korean, not just exactly. Chinese and Japanese. Exactly. Um, thank you very much. And also, um, have you come across Gorsuch in, in the US has come out and done some very good work on lockdown and, and the intervention on liberty, so do check that out. My question is about Robert Conquest's three laws. Have you heard of this? Yes. I want to ask you about this, but um, the first thing he says is that everyone is conservative about things that they know best. Yeah. And the third thing he says is that every bureaucracy should be assumed to be working directly in the opposite interests of what it is stated to yes. achieve. But the one I wanted to ask you about is the middle one, which is, right. my, which is that he says that every organization that isn't expressly designed to promote right values eventually becomes left-wing. Yeah. Is that what we're seeing, and how can we stop it? Yeah, I you can answer that. That's brilliant. Yeah, I, I learned that from Scruton. But yeah, they're, they're brilliant uh, laws. But yeah, go on, the, the, well, the, I think the John O'Sullivan, um, who runs the Danube Institute in Hungary and was at one stage an advisor to Margaret Thatcher, he claims authorship of the second law. He says, not conquest, it's O'Sullivan's oh. it's, it's law. Um, well, Catherine Burble Singh quoted O'Sullivan, and I wrote to her and said, I think you're ah, it's conquest. Like, ah. And she wrote back and said, no, it was Sullivan. Oh, well, there you go. So I, I think, I think she's right. Uh, oh, yeah, she's fantastic. Right. It's great to have an opportunity to correct you because you correct Yay! me uh, in, the, in the Daily Skip uh, on the podcast. Um, but, you know, I think it, it is obviously true. If an organization is not explicitly right wing, it inevitably becomes left wing. And we've seen that you know, across the board, whether it's the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Trust, the National Gallery, uh, the British Museum, even if you appoint conservatives to chair some of our cultural heritage institutions, uh, they still become left-wing. I mean, who, who would have guessed that when George Osborne becomes chair of the British Museum, yeah. within months he's talking about returning the Elgin marbles? Um, yeah. Is by definition right wing, uh, but it, even it's become left wing. So yeah. you know, yeah. e even something that's, uh, that's specifically supposed to be right wing. Yeah, but I think, I think we can rest assured that the the, 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 the daily skeptic and the weekly skeptic are never going to be captured. Um, <laughs> so uh, don't Thank worry about much. that. And on the thing that one is concerned about matters one knows best. That's one reason that young people are so woke, because they don't know anything. And uh, the, young, the young person there said, though there are young people out there, there's a guy like called Rory on my other podcast, The Current Thing, we don't need to talk about it. He's 19, so just for the young man as well, there are young people out there who are questioning it, but it sometimes takes a bit longer, right, because you go along with the trends, and, but as you say, once you know about something, obviously you become conservative about it. Anyway, great question. Thank you. Thanks anyway. for coming. Anyway, that's all we've got time for. Uh, I'm going to do some thanks. 
What are you going to do? Uh, I was thank gonna, yous. I was going to do, do some thank yous. Um, you did a thank yous, okay. Yeah, do you want to do something after I've yeah, done yeah. that? Okay, so just quickly, um, those of you who've bought VIP tickets will see you at the secret location. You've been emailed, hopefully, at 10 o'clock, so quite soon. I have to get there by 10, but we'll be there, hopefully, from 10. Um, and I just wanted to thank a few people who've made this evening possible, not just Dr. Will Jones, <laughs> Nick Dixon, the guy who helped us organise it, the indomitable, the indefatigable Ben Hancock, Gaddy and Chris, the cameraman and the sound man, the staff at this fantastic venue, the Emmanuel Centre. <laughs> Izzy Jones, Izzy Jones, who designed the flyer, our fantastic composer who composed all the music, the stings you hear in the podcast, Ian Dickinson. Um, he's here tonight. Hello, Ian. Our producer, Jason Clift, our sponsor, of course, the wonderful Lois Perry and Car 26. And of course, our special guest star tonight, Dr. Jordan Peterson. Thank you. And the last thing, uh, I'm hoping I'll say the, the, the catchphrase and then you guys say after that's going to work. So until next week, stay skeptical. All right, and that's the end. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for coming. See you. Nailed it, I think. All right.